John chapter 4, we're going to talk to you about God and, and His oneness. I'd just like to entitle this thing two words, and that is God is. We all know His name is J-E-S-U-S, but tonight I'd like to speak to you about the G-O-D-I-S. John chapter 4, here's the famous passage where Jesus is speaking to a woman at a well, and He asks her for a drink, and she says, How is it that you're a Jew? You ask me for a drink. And he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for a drink. And I'd give you water. And this water would be within you a well of water springing up with which you would never thirst again. And then she tried to start an argument with him because there was a disagreement between the Samaritans and the Jews as to where the true place of worship should be. The Samaritans said, we're going to worship where Jacob and, and Abraham and Isaac did. We're going to worship and the Jews, of course, worshipped in the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to kind of interrupt the middle of this conversation here with verse 21 of John 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is... When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to... God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, we know that your word is already anointed. And Father, I just pray that it would accomplish and prosper the thing for which you have sent it. And that it would not return void, but God, it would bear fruit 100 fold. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord. And increase in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus told the woman, you worship what you don't really know who you're worshiping. In other words, she didn't have the knowledge of the God she's worshiping. The definition of the word knowledge is the clear and certain perception of that which exists. The apprehension of fact. In other words, if you have knowledge about automobiles, you're going to know facts about liberation and, and uh, oil and lubrication and torquing. You're going to... You're going to know the facts that have to do with the subject that you're dealing with. This woman did not have a knowledge of God. In other words, she was no comprende. She's worshiping a God who she really didn't know about. Jesus said, through the spirit of prophecy, the prophet Hosea in chapter 4 verse 6, he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now it is tragic to work on a job for 25 years and then retire without taking advantage of your benefits. O oh, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. But there are many Christians being destroyed and defeated by the enemy because they really don't know the character and the reality of the God whom they say they serve and the one they're worshiping because of a lack of knowledge. It's not a because of a lack of God's power or a lack of the love on God's part or a lack of God's provision, but it's a fact of a lack of knowledge and I'm thankful that God in these last days has given us the knowledge of His truth. Amen. John 8 verse 32, Jesus said, If you continue in my words, 
Then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know and the truth shall make you free. Notice the truth doesn't make you free until you know it. Truth that is known sets you free. I don't care if it's truth in the Bible, if it's truth in a track, if it's truth on videotape, if it's truth on audio tape, if it's truth coming over this PA system. As long as it's truth, when you know it and it's revealed to you, it'll set you free. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. How does he do that? Through a lack of knowledge. But I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In John chapter 6, he said, The words that I speak to you, spirit, and they are life. How does he come and give us life? By giving us his word, the knowledge of God, and it brings life. Five verses later, Peter got it. In John 6, 68, he says, Master, you have the words of eternal life. Last night after work, it was about one something in the morning, a gentleman came outside the mansion and asked for a ride home. And uh, he was really shook up. We called a taxi. Taxi wouldn't make it. He says, man, I've got to get there. He says, the girl I've been living with, I just spoke and we really got drunk tonight. And uh, she had adhesions in her stomach and I'm afraid she's real sick. She never asked for help. But this time when I spoke to her on the phone, she says, help me, please. He says, I've got to get home. So... I was signing out, so I, I took the man home, and the door was locked, so I went out to the car and got my crowbar, and we pried the window open, went in the house, and here's a naked woman sprawled across the kitchen floor, drunk as can be, with vomit all over the floor. So we, we covered her up with a blanket and, and uh, took her pulse, and she was fine, she was warm. Eventually, she began to talk. She was kind of groggy. much, And... Uh, before I left, I, you know, I got their name and all and just shared with them I was a minister. I laid hands on her and rebuked the spirit of infirmity and asked the Lord would set her free from alcoholism and, and bring her to a recovery and lead her to a greater knowledge of Him. Well, she was supposed to be a Christian, been baptized. I guess the world thinks that that's what saves you. As long as you're baptized, I don't care how you live, you know, you're going to be saved. But anyway, as I prayed for her, she interrupted me and says, Please, you're praying the wrong prayer. And I says, what's the matter? She says, you need to pray the Lord will take me on. And uh, now she's laying on the floor. Her face is, I never really got a true look at her face. And I says, no. I says, the Bible promises long life to his children. You've got many years ahead of you. You're young, you're healthy, and God has a work for you to do. She says, no, the Bible doesn't promise long life. I says, yes, it does. She says, no, God takes men that are, that are 23 years of age. God takes babies that are three months of age. Come to find out that her, her first husband and, and child had died in a car wreck. I says, no, darling. I says, God doesn't do things like that. That was the work of the enemy. She began to scream and cry at the top of her lungs. No, no, no. It's not going to do any good to reason with someone who's drunk. But that is a picture of the world's imagination of God. Even the insurance business will call tornadoes and hurricanes that destroy homes an act of God. When we have proof in the Bible that the, that the enemy can cause these things. And uh, there she is. And herself to her death unless God uh, uses us to minister the truth to her. Because she believes that God is a destroyer and that God is a thief. She really doesn't have a knowledge of this great God that she's supposed to be serving. The world has this idea of God as being this horrible ogre with a big club just waiting to get him because he wants to teach him a big lesson. I wonder what kind of lesson she can learn from that. If anything, that experience is driving her further from God. 
But Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God is a spirit. Verse 24 says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're going to discuss several of the attributes of this God whom we serve and we worship in spirit and in truth. And one of the first ones is we learn from the Word of God that He is Spirit. On creation, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved across the face of the waters and God said here's where we see one of God's other attributes God is the word God said light be and light was because the entrance of God's word gives light John 1 and 1 says in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God two of the major characteristics of the God whom we serve in our personal life, not only at creation, but in the life of those of us who are the new creations, is God's Word and God's Spirit. God's Word is not this book. God's Word is this book if you'll believe this book. In other words, this book won't scare demons away until you begin to believe what's written in it. That's when the Spirit of God comes and brings this Word to life. You know, when Mary... A lot of people wonder who, who's the father of Jesus. The word and the spirit is the father of Jesus. Angel Gabriel brought her the word. It entered in her ear and faith came by hearing the word. It says, you're found favored among women and you'll bear a child and you'll conceive and you'll call his name Jesus. You know what she said? She said, be it unto me according to your word. So she took the word into her heart and a matter of time, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and brought that word to life. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we learn from God's word that he is both spirit and he is word. And in our lives, we become new creatures through hearing the word, believing the word, and then the spirit of God producing what that word promises. It's a known fact that every promise of God that is in this word contains more than enough power to produce what it promises to produce when that promise is believed. All right. God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So this word and this spirit of God are both attributes of the same God. Know this day, Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, and consider it in your heart. That the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and there is no other. Deuteronomy 32, God says there is no God beside me. Isaiah 43 verse 10 and 11 says before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. There is none other God but one, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. So this God whom we serve is both word and spirit, and he is one. All right, this God whom we serve is also omnipresent. I think many times we don't really understand this. I'd like for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, if you would. And while you're turning there, I'll read from Psalms 
139. Psalms 139, verse 7 says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light unto me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. God is omnipresent. He lives in the place that we call the eternal present. 10,000 years from now, in the presence of God, is already present. Now, for you, those of you and I who are limited by time and space, this is hard to imagine. But we can prove this from the word because the Bible says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We also know that John the Revelator was taken up into the third heaven and God showed him things in the future. And John said, I saw a number of people that no man could number. How did that happen? God transported him in future. God needs no time machine. Future holds no questions to God because God is already there. Jeremiah 23, verse 23. says, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. God is everywhere. He's everywhere. He's not limited by space. This is where you get into trouble if you have the idea of God as being three deities. Those that believe the scripture, they interpret the scripture that states, there's several places that states that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of power, the right hand of majesty. And they believe that that's actually, literally, the right hand of the Father person who sits on this throne and Jesus is at his right hand. But if you'll study your scriptures, you'll learn the Father is omnipresent. Now, if he's everywhere, that means when you go to the edge of the universe, you just keep on going. Now, where are you going to find the right side of an omnipresent being? You'll go to the right forever. You'll just keep on going. That means Jesus Christ is still traveling. You see, the right hand, not to make fun of those that believe that, but the right hand has always been a symbol of authority. Proverbs says, a fool has his heart in his left hand, but a wise man has his heart in his right hand. But it means your emotions, your passions. A fool doesn't have control of them, but a wise man has his passions, his heart, from which flow all the issues of life, the Bible says. He has authority over them by having them in his right hand. Jesus Christ, before he ascended, explained this. He said, all power, which is defined as all authority, has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Now, I'm sure that doesn't answer all your questions, but we'll come back to that. He's omnipresent. This is why we can't see him. This is why he's invisible. Consider this. If God fills heaven, and if God's presence fills the earth, then God's presence fills this building. And if I could actually see God, I wouldn't be able to see you.
Why? Because the presence of God is between me and you. We would be blinded. That's why when God relates to us, He relates to us through what we call manifestations. The majority of which, unless it's a vision or something, is invisible. Some describe it as electricity. Some de describe it as warm oil. Some describe it as a hair standing up on the back of their neck. But whatever it is, it's their body's reaction to the manifestation of the presence of God in your heart and spirit. I know many times in Pentecost, this is part of our heritage, I call it our tradition, uh, when we expect God to move on Sunday night, and He doesn't move on other nights, and we say, my, didn't God move last Sunday night? When actually it wasn't so much as God moving and Him saying, hey, let's go to Richardson tonight. He's already here, but it's because of our tradition, Sunday night is the night that we drop all stops and we really, truly open up to God, and God is able to move. So God is everywhere. He's invisible. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. Now, I know the scriptures teach that, that Moses saw the hinder parts of God, but I look at Moses as being a type of a revelator, just like John was. John saw the future. Moses saw the past. Understand, Moses wrote several thousand years after creation, he wrote the book of Genesis. How could he do that? By word of mouth? No ways. Those of you that have ever been at a young people's party, you play the game Password, you know, and uh, you start a rumor, you know, and by the time it reaches the 13th or the 12th person, it's completely changed. If Moses received the book of Genesis by word of mouth, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be reliable. But he received it by divine revelation. God chose him, showed him the past. Not necessarily his past, but his past dealings with man from creation on down to Moses' day, which actually begins in the book of Exodus. And then, of course, John saw things in the future. So no man has actually seen God until Jesus came who, of course, was God manifested in the flesh. The definition of the word manifestation is a demonstration of power. This is Webster's. An outward or visible expression or that which is manifested. The definition of the word manifest is to make evident or certain, to make clear to the mind and the senses or the senses. To give understanding or to give knowledge. There's that word again. God manifests himself to us in our times of worship through his word, through the gifts of the spirit. He manifests himself to us so that we might get knowledge of him. A clear and certain perception of that which is fact. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit. To teach, to learn, to increase, to be more successful as a believer. A uh, good illustration of a manifestation of something that is invisible is actually light, which is the first thing God created with His Word. We all know, those of us that can remember what they taught us in school, that white light is actually made up of seven colors. And you see those seven colors in a rainbow. When the light shines through water or through a prism just right, the prism will manifest those seven colors 
that are without the prism or without the raindrops are invisible. So a prism or the water, an instrument of manifestation, reveals to us the seven colors that make up white light that we couldn't see without the manifestation of, of that neat little optic, optical instrument. That's what Jesus came. To reveal to us the character, the love, the commitment, the power of the invisible God. He was the visible manifestation of the invisible omnipresent God. Now for him to do that, for him to be visible, he had to be limited to time and to space. Which of course he did by becoming a baby, overshadowing Mary with his spirit. And Jesus Christ being born. In creation, we, we explained this before, the creation, this universe we live in, came into existence through the manifestation of God's Word and God's Spirit. God saying it and God's Spirit carrying it out. So creation is a manifestation of the Creator's love for man. He created this whole universe for us to enjoy. But man through ignorance, through a lack of knowledge, fails God by worship and creation instead of the Creator. Idolatry exists because man deifies God's loving manifestations. He gave us the Son because He loves us. What does man do? Primitive man, unlearned man, makes the Son into a God, and God becomes the Son God. Sure, the Son is a manifestation of God's love for us, an actual product of His spoken word. They worship the moon God and the star God and the water God and the rain God. And all these things are products of the word, but His manifestations are not so much for us to pray and worship to the manifestation as we are to the manifestor. This is called polytheism or multiple gods. 1 John 5, I think it's verse 6 says, In heaven these three bear record, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Now a lot of oneness people don't understand this. But while Jesus Christ ministered here on the earth, the Father, the Spirit that was omnipresent, that was invisible, was still omnipresent and still invisible. And when he was baptized, the voice that came from heaven was not an act of ventriloquism by Jesus. The Bible says, the voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. In other words, very gracefully. It must have happened in such a way you could see it with your physical eye. This was a manifestation of the Father of Jesus Christ. Some people see three people there. They see, this, they see the Spirit as one person. They see the voice as another person. And of course they see Jesus as a person, which He was a person. He is a person. But actually, the Spirit descended and God spoke. You don't see three there. You see one person, Jesus Christ, with the manifestation of His Father, the moving of His Spirit, the speaking of His Word, Showing his approval on the righteousness of Jesus, which he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. The Word and Spirit are not double deities. And Jesus and God, the Father, 
God the Father is a biblical term, sent Jesus, not as an extra deity, but as a visible manifestation of his character to those of us that are limited to time and space, those of us who couldn't see him. If we could, we'd be blind. All right. John 1 and 14 says, The Word was made flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the visible manifestation of the Father. John 3.16, a very one of my favorite passages, For God so loved the world, God, the omnipresent, invisible Father God, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, if you don't receive Me, you don't have the Father. <laughs> he said, no man can come to the Father but by Me. Why? Because I am He that existed before Abraham. I am the land slain from the foundation of the world. I am the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Hallelujah. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Christ is the image of God. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You may have read this, but let's look at it. Maybe we'll see something we didn't see before. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Who was? God was. Chapter 2, verse 1. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings, we did that yesterday, our election, praise God for what happened. And for all that are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life. This is one of our priority prayer requests. In all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. That's what we're looking at tonight. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Imagine this. Just see in your mind the world. This world we live on. And filling that world and all of heaven is the spirit of the invisible God who cannot fellowship with man because of sin. So man was cursed to die because of sin. Christ came to pay the price for our sins. And through his paying the price, he operated as the mediator between God and man. The go-between, the lawyer, the one who healed the wounded relationship. Through his stripes, the relationship between God and man has been healed. And now through his work, man can once again reunite with the Word and with the Spirit. Hallelujah. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, he was cursed with six things. He was cursed with sorrow. He was cursed with death. He was cursed to sweat. He was cursed with thorns. He was cursed with nakedness. He had to wear clothes from that on. 
and he was cursed with separation from God. He came to fulfill every one of those curses. First one that comes to our mind, he died so that we could live. He died spiritually. Spiritual death is separation from God, the sixth part of that curse. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the last things he said was, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now that looks like a contradiction. I mean, if Jesus is God, how can he be saved? But you've got to understand this. It happened for two reasons. Number one, the simplest one, is God can't die. So for Jesus to die, his divine nature had to separate from him. Another reason it happened was to fulfill our curse. We were separated from God's divine nature by which now we're partakers by exceeding great and precious promises, Peter wrote. And so for that to happen for us, he had to take our curse and be separated from God. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore our sorrows. Friend, if you're carrying your sorrows around today, what are you doing carrying them? Jesus carried them for you. What did he have on his head? A crown of thorns. What was happening to him in the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane? Sweating great drops of blood. He fulfilled every part of the curse for us so that our fellowship that we had in Adam at the creation could once again be restored. And through the Father sending his Son, we are redeemed or we have been brought back into fellowship with him. When Jesus hung on the cross, the pictures show he had clothes on, but according to the Bible, he was naked. He fulfilled that part of the curse too. When Adam and Eve became naked, it wasn't just that they didn't have any clothes on, but they became stripped of their rank and authority. Just as a person who, they committed high treason against God. High treason is a breach of promise, punishable by death in any country on, the, on this planet. They committed high treason against God by betraying their loyalty to him and taking the devil's temptation by believing that God wasn't being honest with them. And through their committing high treason, they lost their authority. You see, they had dominion on this earth. Genesis chapter 1, God told them to take dominion over all the land creatures, the sea creatures, the vegetable kingdom, the bird kingdom, the fish kingdom. It was all theirs to control and have dominion over. But through their sin, they became naked or stripped of their authority. And man, for the remainder of his days until Jesus came, had no real authority over the devil because of what Adam did. In the law, if a person was demon-possessed or someone was involved in witchcraft, the law said, kill him. There was no hope for him. Samuel, and another time, Josiah took all the witches and demons-possessed people and threw them out of the kingdom, quarantined them, got rid of them like they were lepers. Jesus came. This is the most unusual thing. They said, man, even the demons obey him. Why? Because you can check out your Old Testament. No man that ever walked the face of the earth had power over devils until Jesus came. Why? Because man lost his power. But through the work of Jesus, our power has been regained. Let's go to 1 John. No discussion of manifestation would be complete without 1 John. That's towards the back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And you know 
that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin for us without sinning, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. All right, chapter 4, verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Jesus came operating with the word and the spirit. We're to operate in our ministry with the Word and the Spirit. God confirmed His Word with signs and wonders throughout the book of Acts. He confirms His Word. Our duty is to take the Word, and God's duty is to take the Spirit and prove the Word by producing what the Word promises. So God, in His love for us, manifested this. John 4.24 states again, God is Spirit, and they who worship Him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Or you could say, and in word. Because Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, told the Father, thy word is truth. Those that are going to worship the Father, Jesus said, now the time is that the people begin to do it. They worship him or serve him in word and spirit. Not two gods, but just two of his major attributes his invisible spirit and his spoken word. The spirit gives life and the letter kills. The word by itself is dead, but it's a spirit that makes it alive. John 16, 13 says, When he, the spirit of truth, the Holy Ghost, has come, he will lead and guide you into all truth. If you have the Holy Ghost without the word or the word without the Holy Ghost, you have a one-oared boat and your spiritual life will go around and round in circles. I don't care if you talk in tongues three hours a day without a diet of God's word or vice versa. You're not going to be as successful as God would have you to be. John 6, 63, Jesus said, The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So to separate God's spirit from God's word is impossible because God's word is spirit, Jesus said. 
Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the word. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it. He goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. By grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. How are we saved through faith? By hearing the word and the word will produce the faith and the faith will cause God's spirit to come into operation and of course to save us. As the body of Christ, we carry on his ministry, speaking words that are spirit and life, reconciling man back to the one true God. Helping other people, this is our purpose, to begin to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm kind of getting out on a limb here, but in John chapter 3, Jesus speaking of the new birth. Let's go ahead and look at that. Teaching Nicodemus about being born again. John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, the church world, the majority of them teach that the water here, except the man be born of water, speaks of natural birth. And of course, the spirit speaks of your salvation birth. And in church for years I've been taught, you probably teach it here, that the water actually doesn't mean that because how can a man be born of water? A man's already been born naturally, right? So the water speaks of baptism. Okay, well, I'd like to take it a step further than that because I know people that <laughs> they've been baptized in water but they went down a dry center and came up a wet one. Their birth really wasn't a birth. Paul said, we're cleansed by the washing of water by the word. In the tabernacle, the first piece of furniture is the altar of sacrifice. And it's neat how all the furniture is laid out in the shape of a cross. The next piece of furniture you come to is a laver of water, which is made of mirrors, bronze mirrors, brass mirrors. And it was filled with water. And the priest could see himself in the side of that laver, see where he needed to be washed, where he needed to be cleansed, and then cleanse. It was kind of a combination mirror wash basin, although the basin itself was a mirror. And before I really saw what I saw, I thought that, that the labor represented baptism, and it really does. But it represents more than that because I believe it represents the Word because the Word shows us the true reflection of ourself. When you come to God, you come first of all to the brazen altar you have the sin question taken care of through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, sin is none other than disobedience to the Word of God. So the first thing you must do is to repent of disobedience is to begin a life of obedience. 
And one of the first things you do is be baptized in water in his name. But your birth, I believe, takes on more than that. I can see the word as being the labor of water. The, the word teaches water baptism. So we're not doing damage to that teaching. We're just, just expanding on it. The word shows us the reflection of our true selves. And the word offers divine detergent by which we can be cleansed of our sinful acts and attitudes. So I also see that here. We're cleansed by the washing of water by the word. And another place the scripture teaches what man beholds his face in a mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. So is the same person that hears the word and goes away and forgets what he's heard. So the word, I believe, is typified by water. Water cleanses. The word cleanses. So you could read it, except a man is born of the word and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You can be born of the spirit and talk in tongues all day long, but if you're living in violation to God's word, friend, it is a mockery. That's why Jesus said, in the last day, people are going to come to me. Didn't we talk in tongues all day long? And, you know, didn't we cast out devils in your name and do great mighty acts in your name? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. Iniquity is none other than violation of God's word. Jesus said, I never knew you. Who is Jesus? The word made flesh. Not discounting miracles, no ways. I believe they'll increase as we become more and more dedicated to the word. But I think many times, sometimes when we come out of the water, we settle back. No, we've been born of the word. This Bible, this Bible is a book full of incorruptible seeds that are waiting to be sown in the hearts of faith waiting to produce what God wants to produce in our life, fruits of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit increases when the seed of the Spirit is planted in our lives. If you're having problems with your attitude and your marriage, with your health, whatever, with your business, begin to sow God's incorruptible seeds into your life and let the Spirit of God produce the success that He wants you to have as a child of God. Also, uh, another thing I see with the Word and the Spirit is the Scripture teaches the letter kills, but the Spirit makes alive. The Spirit, God's Spirit, of course, is none other than his, Himself. He is Spirit and He is Word, which means He is all absolute truth. He cannot be revoked. He, he, he is just in every way, but yet His Spirit speaks to me that He's merciful. It speaks to me of his mercy. And if you have truth in your life, but you become so legalistic with your truth that you have no mercy, you're leaving the spirit of the truth behind. Truth must be coupled with mercy. And I believe that that, that is revealed by, by the word and the spirit being one and the same. The word by itself without mercy is hard to obey without God's Spirit. A picture of this would be, for instance, if you had a mean dog, and the mean dog you took and put a muzzle on him and put a collar on him and tied him up in your backyard. The dog would still be mean, 
but he would be limited by the length of the chain and, of course, by the muzzle on his mouth. That's man who lives under the law without the New Testament, without the Holy Spirit in his life. The law restricts you. All you see is do's and don'ts, can'ts and, and cannots, and don'ts and don't do's. You're restricted, but your nature still hasn't been changed. Still behind the muzzle and the chain, behind the laws and the restrictions that you put yourself on, you're still that carnal person. Something must be done. That's why the word says that when the New Testament came, God would write his laws in your heart. No longer do we live under an Old Testament without our restrictions, but God takes that collar, that chain, that muzzle, and puts it in your heart and makes you a new creature. So now we live by spirit and truth, by truth and mercy, by the word of God being written in our hearts. And because of his love wherewith he has saved us, we don't turn around and very immaturely, like the, the Jews did, begin to judge people because they're not living up to the word that we're living up to. I hope that was clear. In other words, we couldn't live up to the word unless God's spirit came into our lives and wrote his word in our hearts, gave us that extra urge, put that collar, put the restrictions in our heart. We couldn't do it without his work. So anybody else that's living in violation of the word is not someone for me to look down at, but for someone to me to minister love to so that they could be reconciled to God and they could have God's spirit come into them and write his word in their hearts. God is good, amen? He's not 50% good and 50% bad. He's 100% good. Hebrews says, we have a more merciful high priest. Psalms 138 says that God's mercy endures forever. In fact, I think it's that psalm. At the end of each verse, it says, and the mercy of God endureth forever. And the mercy of God endureth forever. And the mercy of God endureth forever. But yet Hebrews says we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Why? The God whose mercy endures forever wanted to be more merciful. Now imagine, mercy that endures forever, how could you have much more mercy than that? By his coming and becoming a man and facing the same temptations that we face, he's more merciful now. And we have a better covenant with God. Not of outer restrictions, but of an inner restriction. Your heart. If you sin, <laughs> your heart condemns you, John said. Convicts you. Not to make you depressed and downtrodden, but to lead you back to the cross. Back to that brazen altar. To have your sins taken care of. Through the work of Jesus, who died once and for all. I'm thankful for Jesus. I hope no one is confused. But the way I see God, Father in creation, the Word and Spirit in creation, sending His Son as our Redeemer and operating in the lives of the redeemed by the Word and the Spirit with whom Adam had fellowship with before he fell. Hallelujah. Let's stand and sing that last chorus we sang.
Praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise Him, all ye people, for His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever praise ye the lord praise the lord all the nations praise him all ye people for his kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord endureth forever praise ye the Lord there's a lot of Christians wanting dreams and wanting visions those are good those are the work of God's spirit but God really wants you to live by His Word and by His Spirit that is within you. They'll lead and guide you on the right path. Amen? The Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. And God's Spirit gives us life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We go to the Father in Him. We walk in Him. He's the way. We believe in Him. He's the truth. We live in Him. He's the life. And we shall arise in Him because He is the resurrection. Hallelujah. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye people, praise Him, all ye nations, for the merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever praise ye the Lord I think God would like to confirm his word with signs following if there's anyone here we're going to sing this again if you need prayer for your body or for any need you have in your life come up we'll minister to you let's sing it again praise the Lord all ye nations praise him all ye people for his merciful kindness is great toward us and the truth of the lord endureth forever praise ye the lord Let's sing it again. 